I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Janine Chastain. We're collaborating on curated conversations to explore how the industry is changing. Together, we'll find ways to create new solutions to current challenges while elevating the value of architects. Welcome Welcome to to Practice Practice Disrupted. Disrupted. Hi, listeners. Hi, Janine. Hey, Evelyn. Hey, listeners. So this week on Practice Disrupted, we're exploring a little bit of architecture and with a climate action twist. And we're going to bring on Patrick, who is the co-founder of Cove Tool. Janine, do you want to go into a little bit about what Cove Tool is? Yes. So Cove Tool is an intuitive web app for Revit, Archicad, Rhino, and SketchUp. It is a building design platform for intelligent performance that produces streamlined automated analysis to help architects, engineers, and contractors achieve energy, COVID occupancy, daylight, glare, radiation, water, and embodied carbon targets while reducing construction costs. That's a lot. It is a lot. And and (laughs) also, one of the interesting things I read on their website is that they're saying that they can help teams reduce analysis time by 66% per project by using this automated performance modeling. So I wanted to ask you, Evelyn, like, why did you want to invite Patrick on? I wanted to invite Patrick on because both him and his co-founder, who actually happens to be his wife, have a background in architecture. They came out of an architecture practice, and they have gone on this very entrepreneurship journey to launch this new tool. So I think... Hopefully we, this episode has a little bit for the technology people out there that are, um, thinking of developing their own tools. But hopefully this episode also speaks to all of the, the young entrepreneurs out there who are, um, interested in potentially launching something new on their own. Janine, why don't you go ahead and read Patrick's bio? Focusing on a crossover between architecture and technology, Patrick Chopson, leads Cove Tool, a web-based design software for buildings using machine learning and automation to drive decision-making. He oversees product development and customer acquisitions as a co-founder. A graduate of Georgia Tech with his master's in high-performance buildings, he is a licensed architect with over 16 years of experience in architecture, research, and mechanical engineering firms. Prior to Cove Tool, he co-founded a successful building performance consulting firm called Pattern RD. Multiple publications, including Architect Magazine, TechCrunch, Site Selection, and Arc Daily, and more, have published his work. All right, let's cut to the interview. Sure, yeah. So, uh, I guess I'm one of the co-founders of at Cove Tool. I kind of follow more of the product side of things, um, whereas like uh, we have two other co-founders, we have Daniel. Uh, Chopson, who's actually my brother, and of course, Sandy Pahuja, um, who's our CEO. Um, she's also my wife as well. So it's a nice like, three-person co-founding team. But um, I guess a few years ago, uh, Sandy and I, we started our own consulting practice called Pattern R&D, so that we were doing like architecture. Uh, I'm a licensed architect, and Sandy uh, uh, are both energy modelers. So we were doing a lot of like simulations and doing stuff with like you know, automating our simulations. And then we realized that it would be a lot better if we could affect more buildings, if we could automate those things together and actually make a piece of software. So then we talked to Daniel, my brother, we got him to leave his high paying job at um, this 
really cool software company that does financial software. And so he came over and helped us build uh, a platform. And how long were you practicing in traditional practice before you made this jump? Oh, yeah. I guess my first architecture job as an intern was like in 2004. And then went to school to become a mechanical engineer and also an architect at the same time. Ended up just uh, finishing the architecture degree. And then uh, I guess my Sandeep and I, we met at Georgia Tech. I guess that would be like 2013. And so after we graduated, we went and worked at Perkins and Will in their research lab. So they have this really cool research lab that's like uh, this guy named John Haymaker. He's like a big proponent of practice-driven research. And we worked with him for a while. Oh, yeah, um, I know John. Yeah, yeah. He's a really cool guy. (laughs) Yeah, we just decided we'd go and then we'd start our own our own thing uh, for a a consulting group because in Georgia, where there wasn't really any other green building consulting company that did the kind of stuff that needed to be done. That's true. I was looking at that. You guys being based out of Atlanta, it's kind of a pretty special, unique place to be for what you're doing. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, there's there's not really. A lot of folks that do that, and also Georgia has not historically been a conservative place. So, I mean, we just went blue. So, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but uh, but people kind of valued uh, cost over sustainability, you might say. So we that's how we ended up starting getting into this whole idea of cost optimization, um, which is was what kind of led into Cove Tool, which is uh, it stands for cost versus energy. Mm. Oh, I actually didn't know that. And when we first started doing it, uh, people couldn't remember the name of our company. So they would say, like, tell me more about that Cove tool, is what they would say. And then we were like, <laughs> okay, well, I guess that's what we should call it. So, um, I didn't realize it was kind of a, a family endeavor. So mm-hmm. that's pretty interesting. So you, you guys, obviously, I, I think the decision to even start your own company is like a really interesting one to make. Have you always identified as entrepreneurs? Like what... You know, some people would see that, but they would hate to leave the safety of their job at a really big firm. Um, right. I guess what was the mindset when you're like, we're, we're going to go out and do this? <laughs> well, it's like, you know, um, there's no really actually secure jobs really anymore. Um, like even if you're at a big firm, they, you know, they staff up and then if they don't get the project, then they have to cut them you know, 30 people yeah. from the team. <laughs> uh, well so, aware. You know, <laughs> so uh, maybe it's better sometimes to kind of like um, chart your own course. But I think uh, for Sandeep and I, we were like, uh, I think well, she was considering, you know, going back to India um, where she's from. And, uh, and, but then we were like, you know what, maybe we should give like, you know, this like, you know, start our own business a try before I do that and just see if we get anywhere. Cause we feel like we got these cool ideas and so we were just driving, uh, you know, together we were carpooling, you know, trying to be green. <laughs> and uh, and she's like, you know what, uh, why don't we just start our own business? And, you know, we hadn't been dating that long when we had this idea. So that was kind of scary, too. But, uh, <laughs> um, but we just decided to go ahead, go for it, you know, and, um, you know, put our shingle out there and using like LinkedIn and different things like that to kind of build up awareness of what we were doing. And then kind of doing a lot of networking uh, is what kind of got it off the ground. And how many years have you guys been uh, a company officially? Yeah, so Pattern, we started in 2015. Um, and then we did that for a couple of years. And then Cove Tool was started in 2017. I see. So, yeah. That's so not we, necessarily an easy year to start even a consulting firm. So, Yeah, it took a lot of work. But um, 
uh, Emory University um, was one of the universities that recognized that what we were doing was significant. And so that they were among uh, some of the clients, but also there's this, um, interesting enough, there's this uh, engineering firm in Atlanta called Newcomb and Boyd. We knew people over there and they were the ones who originally kind of like, they were like, you know what, why don't we just bring you guys in as consultants on one of our competitions? So we know you guys are new. Uh, you don't really have a track record, but we want to show that we're innovative. And they were somewhat tangentially aware of what we had done, the research lab at Perkins and Will. And so they were like, well, why don't you guys come over here and do a competition with us? So that's how most people found out about CoveTool was through the competition for the Candida building over at Georgia Tech. Uh, our team didn't win, but everybody found out about us and what we could do uh, through that competition in the Atlanta area. So they really, you know, I, I, we have to say a lot of kudos to them for helping us get our consulting practice launched. Yeah, that's awesome marketing. So you guys have been around four years. So that means you've kind of, and I don't know if it's the same in tech, but from my experience, like there's kind of a threshold of like being a new business and then coming into a bit of maturity. Um, so it sounds like you guys are kind of past that initial phase and into like actually running your company and having a product that you're selling. Um, have you seen a lot of transition and growth, you know, over that time with how you guys are doing things? Yeah, I think like initially, you know, it was just the two of us. So we built the consulting practice with architecture concurrently because we needed revenue to keep us going. Like when we didn't have consulting projects because they take a long time to pay. So I did like 200 homes uh, in about two years. Uh, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, so we had like a team of like four junior architects and we were running that. And so that was kind of a little wheel that kept the big wheel of consulting kind of going. Um, and then that really took off. And so I think like about by the time that Pat, that Cove tool was really starting to launch, um, we had we had been self-funding the software development um, through the consulting and architecture. And so now we're like a team of like 25 people. And we raised our Series A back in, I guess, uh, I guess that was August of 2020. Congratulations. Yeah, I have um, a few questions to hit on because I actually don't think a lot of architects would understand what Series A is. But now that you're at 25 people, do you miss those? design days i mean it was kind of weird when i had to like leave behind my whole architecture practice and be like okay sorry guys it's all software and no more architecture um, that felt strange because um, you know you spend all those years going to school and building an architecture firm from scratch is like really hard like just launching that off the ground and then to just kind of like hand all my projects off to other architects that i knew be like hey guys Here's five projects. Here's ten projects. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like everybody gets a project. You know? That would be a good day to be your friend. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's actually a firm here in Atlanta that started, um, and we gave them like they had like one or two projects, and we gave them like ten in like one day. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> they're still going strong. But uh, but yeah, I don't know. It's just yeah, I guess it's more like now I'm designing how people design. So it's like I think about like the process, all the different things that we do. And then creating like a process driven research where it's like, okay, here's exactly how this firm does it. Now let's look at how another firm does sustainability. Let's figure out like how those two things come together. How can we make a software that supports all those different workflows and ideologies? So I feel like more so now than ever, I'm designing constantly because we're making like an interface that makes it so that anybody can understand how to do something is very, very 
challenging because it involves like graphics, but there's also like a spatial quality to making a website as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely have to like think about like how graphics and shape of text and what kind of information are we conveying? Like it's all still a design problem on some level. Right. And I think, well, I'm, I'm glad actually that you said that because I feel that so many people attribute architectural design to specifically to the built environment. And there's so many more applications of the design process that we learned and how um, you're still designing for people um, really. And I would, I would say in so many more ways <laughs> than, than before um, because you're not only designing for the users, but then, you know, the end users of those users will feel the effects as well. What did you do to learn kind of the business skills that architecture and engineering school might not have given you? And can you tell our listeners a little bit about what Series A funding or raising actually means? And I know it's a, it probably, <laughs> it, it, it probably wasn't, um, a short period in your life to get that Series A funding, but, you know, to whatever extent you can kind of recap sure. even emotions felt during that time. Yeah. Yeah. So we, we raised it what they call a pre-seed round first. So that's like where you get like friends and family or like an angel investor, somebody who like believes in the idea, but it's highly unlikely that it will succeed. Uh, people who invest in as angels investors typically are like, like man, maybe there's a one in 100 chance it'll turn into something and then we kind of made it through and raised the seed round which is like where you uh, depend valuation kind of depends on your customer or the total addressable market like how many people could use it and at the point we raised the seed it wasn't immediately clear if it would succeed but a seed round is like the investors are looking to make something happen one out of five times basically and then the series a is like a really big deal because it's like only four percent of tech companies ever reach uh, a series a so it's like really hard to get to that point so you have to be at least a million in arr uh, annual recurring revenue to be able to get to a series a more, more than likely wow and it it's kind of special because you are in the aec field so you're competing probably against tech companies that are thinking about it from a completely different angle and industry point of view so in that regard you're kind of in a unique batch of companies in and of itself. I feel like we should pause and also talk about what Cove Tool does and and the like, you know, benefit that users can gain by using it. Sure. I mean, it's a web-based platform that allows you to run automated simulations for like daylight and energy and glare and cost optimization and a bunch of other things. So water. So it allows you to kind of like do all your schematic level uh, sustainability stuff that you might hire. Uh, consultants to do so pr- primarily cove tool competes against people you know maybe a consultant um, or it's used by consultants one of the two and historically like um, i know especially in the past decade um, i know a lot of people who have specialized in sustainability for their careers in aec and they you know have many friends that work on the building scientist side of things and they're constantly trying to uh pull this data in. So I think the value that if I understand correctly is that this is automated and it brings all of those data points together in one kind of concise platform that you can use to really adjust the design parameters of your building. Right. So like typically most people uh, that you're right, like only a specialist can do it. And so that's why we see very few projects are ever simulated because if you kind of do the math and back your way out, 
cost maybe 50k to do a really good consulting project and so you kind of think about what what projects out there have fee to spend 50k on something and you want that to probably be about like one percent of the fee or two percent maybe maximum so that means that there's a very select number of projects and if you're a firm and you're doing like one person can do like maximum 25 projects a year so a, you know a human consultant is usually like 80k to 100k and so if you kind of like split that up between those projects you kind of get an idea of how much how expensive it is to do so most people just don't do simulations because it's too expensive or it takes too much time yeah i think i mean the the other interesting there is you guys have figured out a way to like like in, increase your your value right and get paid <laughs> for not having to do the consulting gig because if you look at architecture like traditional architectural services you know, we can only be paid by the amount of time that we can commit to any one project. So you're always going without, you know, the only option there is to raise your fees, right, to make more yeah. in the end, because uh, it's time for money. So yeah, I think it's super smart that you guys have found a way to kind of leverage, leverage that in, in a way that's scalable, and it actually allows you to have more of that. Well, I realize you guys are still growing, but like, you know, the hope is financial freedom, making money while you sleep. And I, and I realize I, I might be doing a stretch here, but I, um, and I don't want to put words in your mouth as an entrepreneur either, but I think it's important to note that you really found a way to leverage your time and ultimately help more people do what you were doing before. Right. I mean, ultimately my goal is to bend the curve on climate change. You know, buildings are 40% of carbon emissions. So the only way to do that is if every single project was energy modeled. And, I, and Sandeep and I and Daniel, we just looked at it and we were like, there's no way that with consultants will ever be able to do that within, you know, we got to do that now rather than 50 years in the future. So, <laughs> so the only way to do it would be if everyone could do it. So that was kind of like the starting thesis. And that's what kind of drives us forward each day. I'm not so much concerned about making money necessarily as much as having like a future for the planet. Yeah, scaling, scaling the impact. <laughs> Scalability. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, I didn't mean to put words in your mouth. No, no, but I'm just saying like that's kind of that's kind of like what's driving us more so than anything. And so like we've taken pay cuts in the when we first started just to make sure that the business survived, and of course now it's thriving. But like at one point, you know, you really had to make sure that you know the dream lives. <laughs> yes. And also, I mean, I think that the demand is growing. I mean, adoption of using this in design projects is rapidly increasing. There's always been a existing number of practitioners who really advocate for this. But what I'm seeing is sustainability metrics are pretty hard to um, analyze. And so being able to make this more accessible for more designers allows more people to be integrating this into their buildings and hopefully uh, adopt it quicker and across, you know, the United States faster. And I know it's also showing up in design awards um, as a metric, you know, in order to even qualify, I think AIA awards are starting to put it as a requirement that you are thinking about these kind of metrics. So you no longer have to be, I guess, a specialist to have a entry point into these kind of data analytic conversations. Oh yeah. And I think more so like from our standpoint, we're, we, we know that like the super sustainable firms are going to do it, but like, if you kind of think about the problem, like, okay, how do I get like somebody who's afraid of doing this? That's the kind of person that 
uh, we really target in like the marketing or how the interface works to make sure that it feels accessible. And one of the most important things is obviously like if people can get help immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, so like just in our tool, people can chat with uh, different experts on our team in real time. And so that also kind of helps people overcome that fear on their first project. And if you teach someone to fish for themselves, they kind of tend to fish for themselves instead of having to always have to rely on other people. Exactly. Yeah. So I wanted to circle back to part of another question. I, I tend to ask multi-part questions, so sorry about that. Um, but, you know, this whole idea of like now, now you're about hiring a team. What does it take? Like, how do you know if you're hiring the right people? You're not in the architecture space, right? Now you're hiring people that you probably never knew you would be working closely with on your company. Like, did you seek out mentors as you moved through this? How is that process for you? Yeah, I think, you know, the most important thing when you evaluate someone is one, you can kind of like see other successful people like on LinkedIn and what their qualifications are. Um, so that's kind of like a thing. You can also talk to other entrepreneurs or your investors. You know, we have really good investors that have good advice sometimes. Um, you know, occasionally we disregard that advice. <laughs> but um, but some but I think the most important quality is like, do they believe in something is also like really important for us. Like, do you believe in doing the right thing? Uh, do you believe in caring about other people? And if those two things are true and they seem like, you know, you kind of want to hire people that are nice um, who, so that they work well together because the business is run by people, not by, you know, skill sets. <laughs> So it's be- it's always better to hire people who are going to be just good good individuals who use science and that drives their decision making. So we have two rules at Cove Tool. Basically, do you, you did you care about somebody when you did this, and then did you um, you know use science to come up with the answer for it? And if the answer to those two questions is yes, then you're empowered to do whatever you want to do. And so like when you start making it so that people on your team are working as colleagues rather than working for the man, as they say, um, <laughs> uh, it makes it a lot different because it's more um, like being a, on faculty at a university rather than like working for a corporation. How did you, I want to go back on that um, because we talk about, right, the importance of really being intentional about how you set up the culture of the organization you're building. And this is true of architecture firms. This is true of any any business you're developing. So I love those two kind of units of measurement, but how, how did you guys begin to think about like, okay, now we have a real business. How are we going to build this culture? Yeah, I think it starts with the co-founders. So everyone has to, if you're a co-founder, you tend to hire people that are uh, of similar disposition to you. So like if you're like a really not nice person and you're unscrupulous, you hire people who are also unscrupulous and not nice. Or if you care about the environment, and then you're in an interview and you say, so what drives you as a question? Someone says like, well, I just want money. And you're like, well, maybe this isn't like really the right place for you. Um, you know, go somewhere where they drill oil wells or something like that, you know. <laughs> but like if you if you really want to like believe in something or have a vision, I think just having some kind of metric. So like if you want to build a culture, you also need to like uh, have a way of rating your candidates on a scale one to ten with like five or six different things that you really care about. So that you don't get carried away in the moment, like also helps with increasing diversity in your company. If you, one, go out and recruit people from places that maybe other people aren't looking for. So, for example, at, at CoveTool, what we really look for a lot of times is the ability to go out, like if we go and recruit more women, 
or more minorities, those people are being passed over by someone else who's not being as conscientious about what they're looking for, even though they're more qualified sometimes. Right. Yeah. And I, I think what I'm hearing is just putting understanding your values really clearly and, and putting that at the center of perhaps the decision making process and, and that becomes your compass, which is really, I think, uh, an important lesson that um, a lot of entrepreneurs have to learn <laughs> along the way. Yeah. Like over half of our software team is women. Um, oh, wow. And 51% of our company is uh, women employees. And then we also try to keep, uh, you know, you have, but that requires a lot of recruiting. So you really have to like actually change how your, your job postings are written. Um, because if you write like, we're like a bunch of bros and we like code and do all this stuff. And then of course, you're only going to get a bunch of bros who respond to bro things, you know, and then you'll have a bro culture, which is not what you want. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but if you want like a culture that everybody cares about each other and people are like understanding of like, Hey, I have a kid and they're being crazy this morning. So it's like, well, why don't you just call uh, your Australian contacts this evening or something, you know, like being flexible is also like a super important part of making sure that like you're inclusive to all different kinds of people. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think a, a lot of architecture firms are struggling. They they know they want to work on diversity, but they're not quite necessarily sure the appropriate way to go about it. And so those are, I think there's some really good insight on ways to tackle it. Yeah. If you go to historically black colleges and universities and you recruit there, uh, first, that's like one thing because there's a lot of qualified people. Mm-hmm. Um, also, if you recruit, like I said, with like just a little bit more focus on there's actual scientific evidence for like how you write your job posting, like how diverse your candidates are. It's not that hard to get a diverse company. You just have to like care about it and like actually implement it with the hiring process. Right. Yeah. But like the percentages of women, I mean, even in tech, I mean, it's not necessarily better in tech than it is in the architecture industry. So that's really exciting that kind of that you've been able to put that assemble the team that you have. Uh, Georgia Tech has like a lot of amazing women coders that come out of it. Uh, So we kind of (laughs) have hired heavily from over there. Um, Oh, that's nice. mm -hmm. Yeah. And they have a really good architecture program too. (laughs) They do. They do indeed. (laughs) How did your business switch at all, even on the technology side, being during the pandemic? And where, what does return to work look like for you guys? Oh, man. Yeah. So actually sales really picked up once the pandemic started because people had to switch to more digital tools and processes. So it's like it's accelerated technology and architecture by about 10 years into the future. Like before I had to travel to each city and do five to six presentations a day. And then with the pandemic, uh, everything's on Zoom, makes it a lot easier to talk to folks. And now we're probably after post-pandemic, maybe we'll go back to like two days in the office, three days in the office, I don't know. We'll see. But for now, we find that we just need like a once a month meeting. Um, where people see each other in 3D to kind of like still maintain their sanity. But other than <laughs> that, we're we're trying to be safe. I mean, we're in Georgia. It's not terribly good numbers down here right now. Yeah. And to the extent that you're able to, I guess we're kind of curious about the R&D process um, in, in terms of like, it is very ambitious to say that you're going to come up with a product to sell that's technology-based and then actually implement it and then figure out how to get it functional. Um, 
how do you and then funded and yeah. funded i mean that is like <laughs> a huge ambitious goal um how what can you tell us about the r&d process that um you know you're willing to share yeah it's mostly comes down to breaking things into smaller pieces like you can't like eat the whole elephant at once you need to really like take it a little bit at a time and so you know it's easy I put that in air quotes to build something that's for a schematic level of design. And then what we do is we always just go back through and do iterations to kind of like um, go and add another stage to the process. So go from schematic design to DD to DD to CDs and then from CDs to construction documents and get all the way to the, through the process. Like you can't build a tool that does the entire breadth of things that you need to do all in one go. So we have to break it into smaller parts. And then you always have to focus on what is the biggest pain point for people um, of whatever it is, the thing that you're making, and make sure that you uh, solve that that weak link first. How do you gather that information? Is it mostly, you mentioned that you have, you know, people that chat live with your customers. Is that, um, you know, how do you turn that information into this is the next area or this is what we need to fix in the product? For that, you know, just talking to your customer first, like the people who are you're working with. So when we did a beta of our first version of Cove Tool, it was just cost and energy. Just sitting down with people and saying like, hey, here's the thing we made. What do you think? You know? And then they're saying like, well, I don't like this. Oh, I don't like that. And it's like, well, why don't you like that? And it's like, well, for this reason, and you're like, well, I think we could get around it if we did this other thing. You know, you can kind of like negotiate with people who are using it and try to understand like, does this work for Cooper Carey out of Atlanta, which is a firm that uses Cove Tools? So we sat down with them. They're like, well, the Cooper Carey way is we do it like with these different things in this order. And then we go to the next firm. Maybe we're talking to Smithgill. And they're like, actually, we do this other thing. And we don't do that thing. And so then you're like, hmm, I guess I need to add a feature that incorporates that. And so you kind of like, as you talk to more and more different firms, you start to create like a baseline for like, what is the typical thing people are doing? how do we solve that and if there is some person with some strange thing that they're doing then you say like we'll just use grasshopper <laughs> <laughs> we might not be the tool for you <laughs> yeah exactly because you, um, you want to design stuff for pe- for the maximum number of people not for like a super niche group of people who are like because then that's usually the folly of most architectural software they build it for a really tiny tam total addressable market and then they don't get funding and no one uses it so mm-hmm I love these acronyms that you're throwing in that most people in architecture firms probably would not know. But thank you for defining all of them. So, <laughs> I had a question from a friend who's a building scientist, and she wanted to know, do you have any ideas about how your platform might integrate designing for resilience or projecting performance with future clients? Um, and she gave the example of really hot days, which I know you're probably experiencing in Georgia at some point. Yeah, so there's actually like a whole database uh, for the whole world that has predictions for what your high wind events or how much damage you're going to get in the future from climate change and things like that. Um, So you can't integrate that into the map. Um, So we have like a 3D map of where your building is and everything, all the context. But um, there's also like you can do future weather predictions. Like if you, you can kind of like find an equivalent weather for your location. So for example... By 2050, um, Atlanta will have the same climate as Mobile, Alabama. There's actually a database of what the translations are from one place that's to crazy. another. So <laughs> that's yeah. something we're working on as right now. Interesting. 
That's really great. Um, I did when I worked in San Francisco, I did um sea level rise analysis for the Bay Area, and it was really shocking because I, you know, one of the projects was like right there at the edge on Embarcadero. Oh yeah, and the the anticipated sea level rise for fifty year period and a hundred year period was just so much higher than what I think I could have imagined until I did the analysis and the numbers. Um, so I think, yeah, the changes that we're anticipating are quite shocking once you really get into the data. Yeah, when you see those numbers in meters, it's easy to forget that that's three feet per meter. Uh, so, <laughs> so if it's a two meter sea level rise, it's like six feet. That's like, there's like one part of, like Miami is already experiencing like recurring flooding from sea level rise. So it's already here. Yeah, it's already here. I know I keep taking us back to climate change, um, Evelyn, but um, feel free to bring us back to entrepreneurship. (laughs) No, that's fine. I think it's all kind of intertwined, especially given why you guys are are in it uh, for for scalability and to make the planet greener. Um, What firms are you guys targeting in terms of, is this for like, can the solo entrepreneur do this? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely like, um, we have one package that's like for really, really small firms. And they also have like a their own like collective training regime. So like sometimes we'll do like an AIA event where we'll get like for AI 2030 reporting. A lot of times small firms think that they can't do it or like a single practitioner doesn't think they can do it. But right. if they all get trained together and then get some free access as part of the, you know, because we work with the AIA sometimes to kind of like do those training sessions, they'll give us a discount on paying them for the training session then you know the architects are getting there they get it for free for a few weeks and then that way they can log their stuff at least um while they're kind of getting their training um so that's definitely important because um that's how automation really helps though overcome that is if i'm a sole practitioner if i just like know where, where my project is what type of project is and then what the 3d model is mm-hmm. you can get all the data uh, spit back to you did you guys um, look at the code top 10 metrics that they've been pushing out? Has that been something that's been helpful in terms of developing your platform? Yeah. So I guess when that first came out, I guess it was like 2018, maybe we were watching that closely and we saw what those metrics were. And then we immediately incorporated that into the platform. So we put all the uh, code, we went through the code top 10 spreadsheet and just tried to pull out everything that we could easily simulate and do like the water calcs or the walk scores, transfer bike score, you know, things like that. So all the things that are in that top 10 spreadsheet, we've been actively integrating with Cove Tool. Oh, that's so great. We always try to support anything AI. Great. Yeah. Um, what from architecture did you take forward into what you're doing? Obviously there's the building science part, but like in terms of running your business, um, I guess like from a going all the way back to architecture school, I was always interested in like the intersection of technology and architecture and how those two things interact. And so I did like a Mars colony for my thesis. Oh, cool. Five-year undergrad. And so what a, one of the things I took away from that was um, the fact that this thing called the pattern language, um, which is like from Christopher yep. Alexander, it's this idea that you can break down design to like components and then use those components to create rules that kind of guide the way you design. So kind of like that together, once I started actually practicing as an architect, I use those principles to do like either modern houses or historic preservation. That's kind of, we did either one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But 
one of the things that I think is really interesting about the pattern language is that it's the basis for all modern coding methods is the actual Christopher Alexander. He wrote that book and a bunch of computer science guys read that and were like, huh, so we don't have to write all of our code in one go. We can actually debate, make it into little, little pieces and then put those together to make more things. And so that ended up becoming what today is called the agile method of software development, where you can make different components and put them together and do sprints and all this stuff. But all that kind of goes back ideologically to an architect. Oh, it does. Interesting. Yeah, I've heard. Actually, Evelyn, if you want to dig into this here, I know she's been talking a lot about agile and we use the term sprint also in some of our work. Um, you know, from a technology standpoint, can you guys give us an example of what that is like? And it's interesting to hear you say that you think it does relate to architecture. Oh, hundred percent. Like, <laughs> cause I think like maybe when Christopher Alexander put his ideas together, computers were kind of like not really a thing. And so people didn't see how it could be applicable that you could have rules that could help you with design. That was pretty much an anathema to anybody in the postmodernist age. I think though, as computing got more advanced, you know, people were looking at his book and which is like maybe the first hyperlinked book you could say. Um, and then they started thinking about how those code blocks work, but I guess purely from like how we're, we're thinking about software, like we have a one week sprint process. And so we pull things into that sprint. So basically that's like uh, all the team, they get a list of tasks that are organized by priority. And then like, and then we also have like stories, which is like things that go from more than one week. Uh, and so then certain people are dedicated to certain stories. You know, there's always somebody fixing bugs, but you know, then you're able to kind of like evaluate a, a thing, you bring it in, um, they code up, you know, I give them an interface or somebody from my team. And then they kind of marry those two things together. We do all the back and forth for the science. And then we have like a beta version internally. And that gets tested on what they call a staging server, uh, where you're like testing things before the, the world sees it. And then once it's all tested, then you send it to production. So that's kind of maybe the process. I'm not sure how that all fits together in terms of your question. but No, I mean, I think it's, it's just like a way of... There's, so there's a lot of different definitions of, of agile. And I think I, I approach it in my personal life. I approach it very differently than say, you know, what happens in, at work. But it, it is these motion, it is these things that happen in short spurts to kind of get to the, to the bigger outcome. So yeah. you guys are thinking about that probably in terms of like design crits and pinups. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So like even before we get to a full feature, we have everybody mock up and then like walk through like how it's supposed to work. Um, and so even from the research side, which we have architects and engineers working in our research lab, um, we're always thinking about the research process the same way that the software team is thinking about the coding process. So we also use sprints um, and research. And then each person is kind of assigned certain like things that they have to be champions for to get the all the way to implementation. So I don't, I don't have to do everything. <laughs> yeah, no. And that's really important because I think we've all experienced working in an office where there are bottlenecks and that becomes problematic in the, you know, grand scheme of things. Yeah. And I think it becomes even more important as, and Patrick, you can correct me as, you know, a lot of software companies have moved towards software as a service right? Because that means that you're shipping product on a more regular basis, you know, with 
anytime you essentially get an update is what what it means to ship products. So in that respect, like the ability to do these agile sprints becomes that much more important to kind of keep up with customer need um, and demand and make those changes that you said that you need to the tool based on what, you know, all the interviews that you've been doing. Right. Because like, you know, we can deploy, we usually deploy two to three times a week to production. Um, So, you know, like if someone's like, hey, this thing's not working or um, my... You know, I had this problem or it's like, oh, this energy code needs to be switched from, you know, 2013 to 2016 or something. We can actually like do that almost immediately. So people feel like uh, when they're using the software that like if they have a complaint or a need or something that uh, it kind of like gets resolved quickly Ma- means that people are feel like they're a part of the process of creating Cove tool as well. So if you're like using the software, you're, and you're chatting with us, like that's going directly into the current sprint planning for the next two weeks. So you have a really start to get really strong product market fit really quick because uh, everyone's involved in shaping that. Do you have a vision for where you guys want to be in the next five years? I mean, obviously it's clear based on your values, you want to help people adopt it to save the environment. But beyond that, and or maybe in parallel to it, um, what 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 is the grand vision for the company? Yeah, I mean, like I think ultimately every entrepreneur you sh- you need to shoot for your being an IPO <laughs> company. Mm. Um, so uh, currently we're on track for for that. I hope um, it looks pretty good so far, and with no signs of slowing down, that's for sure. But I think the long term vision um, involves you know just solving all the different connections of data translation problems that cause people not to do the, uh, the right sustainable thing. So for example, like maybe if I'm a mechanical engineer and I can't, and I have to remodel my project to be able to calculate how much um, insulation I need on my ductwork. And because it's too hard, then I don't do that. That would right. be an example of a design problem that we should solve as part of our platform and connect that weak link in the process and then move on to doing something else later. So just kind of keep connecting the part that's causing the most heartache and also connect professions that have the most translation problems. So it's like, for example, we're working with manufacturers to integrate their sales cycle into CoveTool so they can get information from their customers, put their products on that person's project, quote them a price that's actually realistic in less than a day, (laughs) which is typically... It's if you want to switch to wood wood construction, for instance, and you want to do wood panels and everything, uh, the time it takes for someone to do a wood panel quote is perhaps too long. Uh, mm-hmm. So then you end up just going with steel instead. So huge embodied carbon problem can't wow. be solved because there's just not enough time with the current like one to two week period it takes to estimate a, a different structural system. That's really great to hear. I, I love that because you really are tackling... Um, you know, more systematic problems within the industry. Yeah. Buckminster Fuller is kind of like, I look up to him, Um, but he always like looked at the world in a way that he's like, he views the whole world as a design problem where there's no boundaries between what the architect is doing and what the guy on wall street's doing or what the guy in construction is doing. What, you know, he kind of like took more systematic views of the problems of the time. So Mm -hmm. I think that's like every, if everybody started doing that, we'd be able to like, see more connections and not just be so narrowly focused on our 
one profession. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of interested architects out there who have ideas, but are afraid of taking the next steps. So what words of advice or encouragement do you have for them? Yeah, I guess what I would say is like you miss 100% of the shots that you never take. So like, I think you just need to try and make it happen. Uh, ultimately, because you don't, I think a lot of people are holding on to, oh, I have this job, you know, but your employer could fire you at like any time because, you know, some condition could happen. So it's like, you only live one time and you might as well like have fun doing the things that you do. And the worst case scenario is that you go out and become an entrepreneur and then like it takes you one extra year to get your your seat near the window if you have to come back to the firm, you know, like, <laughs> you know, there's, there's kind of like some risk involved, obviously, in starting a something, but like involves mostly just being able to use math to figure out like, does this make sense? Like go back to your fundamentals. Like if someone did this thing and I charged them this X amount for it, would I be able to support this business? You know, there's some, a lot of really good business books out there for like startups that kind of like help you go through that math. It's also never a bad idea to join like an accelerator. Um, if you do have an idea and you're like severely short on like resources from a business and marketing and learning how Google AdWords work and all that. So I would say like probably joining an accelerator is a good idea, but a lot of times like certain accelerators will build themselves as like, it's like, oh, if you come here, we'll make you 100% successful and they kind of make it seem magical, but it's not magical. It's just like, do the unit economics work of the thing that you're making? And can you, are you persuasive enough to get in front of enough people you know, there's like, you may need to like pitch this thing to like a hundred people. Like if you pitch it to someone the first time you show it off, they're like, someone's like, oh, that's dumb. You can't just like fold and say, well, I guess I'll go back to the Revit drafting table. You know, yeah. <laughs> you kind of have to like you persevere. And especially like if you're not like a white guy, like you're definitely going to have to persevere more. That's mm -hmm. just part of it. Like, um, unfortunately. Um, so it's true. I, <laughs> So like um, if you get like 50 no's, know that there's one person out there who's going to see what you see. But also, you know, you just kind of have to like keep pitching both the idea to investors if you do invest. But if someone really doesn't, if no one believes in your idea and you've done the math and it looks like it works, then you can also bootstrap it. Um, so that's kind of like what we did. So we actually got people, you know, friends and family, you know, you can usually find somebody who's a coder that, you know, um, and then like work together because people who are good software engineers, they're the people that they're kind of like contractors. They make things, but you know, if you're the creative person, they're looking for someone to team up with to be the next big thing. You know, so a lot of times you can get people, um, if you say, Hey, I'll give you 50% of the company. I'll be the other 50%. Let's do this. You know, that those are, um, sometimes you just have to just make it happen. But mm -hmm. usually if you kind of leave behind safety of your job and go full force into something that's the only way you'll be successful if you kind of want to do the side project uh, you're not ready uh, to be an entrepreneur yeah I, I i like the notion of just like pitching yourself multiple times i feel like in architecture we're actually told mm -hmm. to not not tell everyone what we're doing all the time um which is the exact opposite of what i was told you need to do in business school or not be front and center and be willing to jump up there and lay it out there on the line. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, like as an architect, you're like, well, if they didn't see it, then, you know, 
you're, you're used to getting a lot of criticism as an architect. Uh, also, you have yes. to be aware as an architect when you're working with software engineers or people who are not architects that your level of pain for like criticism about how something appears is like 4,000% higher than anyone else. So don't be too critical. <laughs> Uh, see, that, that that seems like that's that comment came from a lesson learned over time. Uh, yeah, it's not going to look like uh, Facebook or you know an Apple product on the very first time you build something. It's going to look pretty crappy. So um, make sure it works first. <laughs> so what I really appreciate about Patrick's journey is that he is a, what I would consider a younger entrepreneur in this space. And I hope this story is an interesting story for like the mid-career professionals and older, um, that there are young people out there that are building really unique and special things. And I also hope that our younger listeners realize that, you know, you don't need decades of work experience to go out there and, and build something either. But what Patrick had more than anything else, I think, was the entrepreneurial spirit to really see a problem and then ultimately find a way to build a business to solve it. So when I listen to this story and I hear Patrick talk about his journey, what I'm hearing is just a really great purpose-driven case study about how to take something that is a value to you and turn it into a business. When they were in school, they knew that they were passionate about finding solutions to uh, climate action and climate change through large-scale solutions. And while they were at Perkins Will, they they worked on the research team and, and grew in their professional experience there and understanding how to do the work that they were trying to accomplish. But it's very cool to see them go out into the world and think about the specific barriers and gaps in the market that are preventing climate action from scaling at a larger reach and using their design skills and their entrepreneurial experience to find solutions and design around those specific barriers. Because once you break those barriers and obstacles down, it allows for wider adoption and reach of the solutions that you're trying to implement. Yeah, it's interesting to me because one of, you know, one of the biggest complaints that I hear come out of traditional practice is that people don't value what we do enough. The, the flip side is that people valued what Patrick and his team had to deliver, but they couldn't always afford it. So they found a way to continue to deliver upon that value, but scale it in a way that actually more people can afford the analytics that he was doing himself. You know, previously it would take a person much longer to do, and you'd also have to hire someone with six figures to do it. I think about the scalability of the education into the industry. You know, I think when lead became popular, that was something that a lot of firms were hiring around. And so there, there is um, a group of talented leaders in our field who have studied and understand high performance design, but there's certainly, that's not the skill set of every person practicing. And so what I see is a, a way that they're breaking down the barrier around education. And I think for people who don't understand how to do that research or do those um, to find those metrics, this tool, I think using it is a way to learn it, like you said, and to bring it into smaller practices who would otherwise probably not have 
access or information around how to do that kind of work. Yeah, and it's interesting at kind of the top of the conclusion, you mentioned this being a purpose-driven practice. So for me, purpose-driven practice is one thing because the value of what they are delivering is very purpose-driven. In this case, they like enabling more architects to design sustainably. But purpose-driven, you'll find that those purpose-driven companies are really also very purpose-driven and socially aware when it comes to how they build out their culture, the vision and mission internally as well. So he has placed an incredible amount of trust on his employees, uh, you know, and it's not a butts and seat type of thing. He's essentially, they asked them two questions, right? Which was really meaningful me, to me The you know, in making that decision to do what you do, did you care about someone when you did this? And did you use science to find the answer? And I think that just opens up a lot of doors for anyone at his organization to contribute to the product and to the company. Um, but it also gives them the ability to say, okay, it's, it's okay to fail, which I think is also equally important. And I think you mentioned this too, but they were really specific about hiring and specifically around diversity, which I know we've talked a lot about offline and on the show. This is a challenge that a lot of firms are facing. They know they want to, they want to find a solution to the diversity challenge. And I think this is another example of how you can start to bridge those conversations in your firm um, and be very proactive about pursuing it. Yeah. And he, I mean, it's, he just touched on the process, right? Like you have to go to where the talent is in places that you might not have gone to. So the historically black um, university and colleges, but also you have to really analyze how you're even writing job descriptions to make sure that they're very inclusive or or not off-putting to the type of people that you would want to attract as well. So for me, making that intentional decision to bring in more diversity to the company means that you really have to look at all of your people processes and analyze like where where are we creating unknown road bumps that might be hindering people from joining the firm or from staying at the firm. So to just bring this full circle and come back to where we were hoping to go with this episode, I think this is a case study about aligning your values and your work and your company so that they're all moving forward together and using your business to create an impact. We're going to include the links in the show notes so that you can go learn more about what they're doing. So thank you for listening and tune in next week. Thanks for joining us on Practice Disrupted, a podcast by Practice of Architecture. Visit us at practiceofarchitecture.com to find out more about future episodes and the changing nature of practice. We have several ways you can get involved with our growing community. Find us on social media at Practice of Arc. You can also become a member of the POA Lab or join us on Patreon. And if you want to take your career or practice to the next level, Janine and I also consult, provide workshops, and speak regularly on this research, and we would love an opportunity to collaborate with you. This show is part of Gable Media. You can learn more about other podcasts and video channels in our community by visiting gablmedia.com. 
We are also looking for sponsors who want to partner with us in 2021 and beyond. If that's you, please contact me directly at evelyn at practiceofarchitecture.com. If you like the research we're doing here, please help us out by leaving a rating or review on Apple. We appreciate you subscribing on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to share with your friends and feel free to let us know what other topics or speakers you're interested in hearing from. Thanks for listening and see you next week.